everybody my name is michelle welcome to the very first episode of excellence at all costs um, where i am highlighting some issues that i care about people that i know care about and just elevating things that i believe will enhance our community particularly our youth joining me today is um, attorney hardell ward i'm gonna let him tell you a little bit about himself so we can get started hardell Good morning, Michelle. Uh, my name is Hardell Ward. I am currently an attorney at Promise of Justice that is based out of New Orleans, Louisiana. I am currently the manager of the Jim Crow Jury Project. We can get a little bit more what exactly that is in uh, in this conversation. Uh, I've been an attorney for about ooh, I'm around 15 years. I do not do the math on that anymore. Uh, I undergrad at Morehouse College. I went to Tulane Law School for for my law degree, I uh, at Tulane Law Clinic, I got I got my first foray into public interest work uh, by being joined the D, the domestic violence clinic. Uh, really enjoy that. Uh, although my first job out of law school was traditional uh, commercial uh, commercial defense, um, working for you know railroads, uh, real, real retail stuff. It was you know nice job, paid well, uh, great people, uh, but just wasn't anything I was passionate about. Nothing I was actually interested in. Uh, was looking to get back into public interest fair. Uh, a job came up at Southeast Louisiana Legal Services. That is the legal services corporation for uh, New Orleans, Louisiana, and greater New Orleans, Louisiana, I should say, uh, doing housing and homeless prevention. I took that job, did that for about eight years, uh, kind of really focusing on Section 8 defense and Section 8 policy. Uh, Section 8 is like the, the housing choice voucher program, I should say. Uh, specifically, so we're kind of focused on that. Then, around eight years into that, opportunity came with a um, a grant between a partnership with the Department of HUD, uh, Housing and Urban Development, and with the Justice Department, <clears throat> excuse me, to create a reentry program. The purpose of the it was a pilot program. Uh, the idea was to identify families and individuals who had uh, some sort of housing uh, assistance, was it public housing or Section Eight? and identify individuals who otherwise would be coming home. Uh, put some context, one of the sad, one of the common ways people would lose their assistance or housing assistance is someone in their family would who would have been incarcerated and then they would return home. And the problem is the way the laws were written, the way the, 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 way the structure was, this person would get released from incarceration and have nowhere to go. They could not return to their family home because if their family was still on some sort of housing assistance, it was a violation of the rules for them to simply be in the home uh, because of their criminal record. So the purpose of this program was kind of to identify, especially youth, returning youth home and put them on the path. So not only could they legally reside in their family homes, get that foot up, but also to reach a point where they could exit uh, housing as any other, which is the goal of uh, any occupant on public housing. It's the, put them in touch with the resources needed to find uh, gainful employment, to find housing of their own. Uh, that program went for about two years. It was it was always a pilot program, uh, change in administration. The program kind of didn't get renewed. Uh, but from that, it kind of gave me a passion for, for criminal law 
and for individuals who of what happens once you get incarcerated once after conviction um from doing work like that, I was able to, with the Jim Crow Jury Project, which uh, which our primary job is what's called post-conviction relief, which is someone who has already been, uh, who's already incarcerated trying to get to relief. What's interesting about Jim Crow Jury Relief is, while usually uh, the conviction part is kind of done because we're dealing with people who are incarcerated, what the Jim Crow Jury Project is, uh, there was a law uh, that was only in Louisiana and Oregon uh, that allowed a non-unanimous jury. The per- we call it a Jim Crow jury law because the law was written during the Jim Crow era and it was written explicitly for the purpose of maintaining white supremacy. The idea was very simple. If you, uh, the law, you know, after Reconstruction, law said black people had to be able to serve on jurors. Well, they noticed if there were black people on jurors, the uh, jurors would not reach unanimous versions of guilt on these very very slim cases and that it would exonerate a lot of black men so they changed that they changed the law to say that well you can just disregard the votes of two to three people so that meant that a da even when they went to the trevordier they could you know they could tactively figure out a way to limit the black or a person of color non-white men uh, participation in jury to two to three and then know that when they went to the trial it wouldn't matter what their vote was because you wouldn't need their vote to actually convict. And that basically served the prison industrial complex uh, in Louisiana. And well, when you add in all the rest of the Jim Crow laws, uh, laws about simply quote unquote loitering, laws that said African American men had to have employment and had to be able to show proof of employment if they're ever just seen about town, if they're ever any place that's not like on their property, uh, they could be arrested and be sent to Angola, which, uh, Everyone probably knows what Angola is in Louisiana. You either know it from, isn't that that prison with the rodeo? Or you know it is, isn't it that prison that was a former plantation farm? Both are true. Uh, but yeah, so you had individuals who would just be quote unquote arrested for committing a crime, then get shipped off to a plantation where now their labor was held for the state. And that had been going on for 120 years. Uh, the, there was a case very recently in 2020, uh, Ramos v. Louisiana, where the Supreme Court finally held that you required a unanimous jury as part of your uh, Sixth Amendment constitutional rights to a trial by jury, and finally held that it's against the states. So I tell people all the time, we're saying, we're past Jim Crow, we're past Reconstruction. We are not past Jim Crow. Uh, I was born in Jim Crow. I I was born in Louisiana. Ergo, I was, if you were born before the year 2020, that means you were born in Jim Crow, Louisiana. That is what that means, because the law was still on the book in 2020, Louisiana. Yes, there was a constitutional measure in 2019, but that only moved, looked forward. What about the individuals who are already impacted about that? What about activities that occurred before 2019, which the law still said you could get a non-unanimous jury? Uh, my son is four years old. He was born in 2017. Also, he was born in Jim Crow, Louisiana. So it, it's important to remember these things because I think when we're talking about the law and we're talking about the history of special racial injustice, it's so common that people think it's in the past. They, cause there's, you know, we, we, we don't appreciate this jump in technology that we've gone through in our lifetimes from landline, every house having one landline rotary phone to us talking on a zoom across the country with perfect video quality, uh, that things you saw in black and white meant your, your parents lived it and didn't live it as old parents. They lived it as children. So everything from Reconstruction to now is less than one generation. And I think that's just an important thing to always remember. So yes, you are still living in 
a Jim Crow Louisiana because the laws have not changed and the laws have not addressed the individuals who are still incarcerated because of a Jim Crow law. And that's that's primarily what my that, that is what my practice is now. We have a case before the Louisiana Supreme Court that will let us know if there's going to be some relief via the law, and if not, whether or not we have to try to go back to the legislature. A lot of work on that, but that's kind of where where I am now. Uh, otherwise, uh, you know, I try to stay active in my community. I was on the board of Crescent Care, which is one of the largest um, medical providers in New Orleans. I've tried to do a lot of things in the community. I've done some stand-up comedy. Uh, just trying to be active in my community. I love I love New Orleans. I consider it my home now. Uh, but I, I was born in uh, Crowley, Louisiana, which is a small rural town in uh, southwest Louisiana. Uh, and, you know, it was always my dream to go to the big city. And I kind of feel like at least I'm doing that. I, I was able to move to the big city and, and be successful here. Not, although I will say every day I'm living in the city, I appreciate rural life so much more. <laughs> but yeah, it's not for me. But it is. But is what it is. What I appreciate. Definitely, everything you said resonated with me. Um, <laughs> the rural life, definitely. Um, here in New York, I I really really appreciate my hometown of Kentwood and just the community that I had there. Although the opportunity left a lot to be desired, the fact that. There were people in the grocery store everywhere that I believe genuinely cared about my best interest. And so um, if I could find a way to kind of merge the two with my future um, family, um, you know, that that would be the most ideal. But um, one of the things that you said that I really kind of wanted to elaborate on or I wanted rather you to elaborate on was the part about um, Jim Crow being now. And um, you said that a lot of times children are far removed from, from the recency of a lot of these events that occurred. My grandfather is still living, he's 98 years old. And um, unfortunately he never learned to read. And, but he's probably one of the smartest people that I know. Um, he's memorized most of the Bible scriptures and, and um, also, he was a long haul truck driver and police officer um, as a profession without being able to read well. But when, when people talk about that, the assumption is that he didn't read because he wasn't studious or whatnot. But we know that the outdated laws of the time didn't really allow for that. And so when I um, think about that, it kind of speaks to what you're saying. That's just my mother's dad. It's not very far removed, but but our children, when they hear stories about people who weren't allowed to read, they're thinking it was 200, 300 years ago. That's not the case. Um, so yeah, just kind of how do you think we should go about impressing upon our youth the importance of understanding not just history, but but how our recent history is impacting us today. What starts with is being honest, and we have to be honest as a society, as a culture, as a, as an America, of what our history actually is. Because I think what what happens is we we forget things, and I don't, and I do. I, I'm a person who believes you give everyone the benefit of the doubt. I don't think individuals who like when me and you, we can talk about systemic 
uh, systemic oppression, systemic racism, systemic white supremacy. And we know what that is. We, we see it. But they think, I think many people hear these conversations we have and they think we're having it from this idealistic or this philosophical conversation of this analytical conversation. But it's not, it's merely a historical conversation. It's a conversation that says, no, no, no. In the 1920s, not far along, less than 100 years, the law said you had to be you had to be white to own property in the West Coast. Like these are laws, and the in the 19 up until two years ago, the law in Louisiana said you couldn't be convicted with a non-unanimous jury, and the reason for this was to perpetuate white supremacy. That was what the law said. The fact that we forgot about it. The fact that we didn't, we stopped talking about it. The fact that it was hidden does not change. That is what the law said. That is what the what the law is, was, and what we are under. And it's and we have to be honest with ourselves to acknowledge. If you did not know Louisiana and the state of Oregon had these laws on the books, if you did not know that there were explicitly laws to further one race over the others, that there were specific laws to incarcerate other races. If you did not know these laws existed until two years ago, what do you think the effect of that law was? What did, how did that change your worldview? How did that change your understanding of what America was, of what criminal justice was? We watch the news and we hear about now, I think every report is crime is up, crime is up, crime is up. But under what context is that? Uh, Why is crime up? Why is, uh, I think recently Biden said he's gonna pardon people who have simple possession of the federal law. You, we should know why that was ever a thing in the first place. Why was federal law criminalizing simple possession of marijuana? That's a, that's a question that should be answered. Why it is important that he is gonna pardon them, but why it doesn't actually affect a lot of people. And why it doesn't bring relief to a lot of people who are under state charges. And why are there state charges different from federal law? And why, why there are certain states that cheered this and while there are certain states that didn't. And if you don't learn that history of it, you're kind of doomed to repeat it. And it comes up in all manner of context. Uh, uh, not not to sidetrack you, but this is one of those points that I, it's one of those things I just think people need to know. Consider the, 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 the last election, the Nash presidential election, January 6th. Everyone remembers, you know, they stormed the capital to change. And the thing that always, what got me was during the whole discussion, whether or not to certify the election to challenge it, uh, Senator Ted Cruz from Texas stood up and said he was a student of history. And to resolve this crisis, they sh- he looked through history and he looked to the compromise, I believe, of 1860. And he said that it was heard on the news, we should do this compromise. Did anyone go look at what that compromise was and why that compromise existed? That compromise was, the re- was what ended Reconstruction. That compromise was because of Southern, uh, Southern whites who decertified Southern elections that amongst other things for Louisiana was the election which uh, PBS Pinchback would have been, should be the first black governor of the South, but white racist, uh, I don't remember the party, challenged that election, were able to overturn it and then forged a compromise on the Hill to not only end reconstruction so they could continue to write Jim Crow laws, but to take away the rights that people who the formerly enslaved had gotten. They had organized, they had voted, they had voted one of them into the governorship in Louisiana and that's taken away. And it's one of those things of here we are at this election in this circumstances, 
and you can just say, well, I'm a student of history, let's do this compromise. And he's not challenged on the historical context of that compromise. It's seen as, oh, this has happened before. We can compromise. The elections aren't aren't status, but the only time the elections have been challenged have been when there is one party trying to take away the the correct, I'm not that's to say correct, but the, the will of the voters. It's one party and it was Southern states trying to challenge it. So when you have Southern states, uh, like Georgia, which was a prominent in the last election, trying to change the, the importance of those two senators. When you have, again, Southern states trying to decertify, like that's why it's important. That's why it's very important what's still going on in Georgia and their investigation into and tampering. Because it was a, re, a redo of reconstruction of individuals upset that they lost this power. And we can't, we, we need to be students of history and realize you cannot yield to that because the yield to that then was, well, we'll just end reconstruction and things will be, and things will be fine. And we ended reconstruction and brought on, you know, horrors for African, African-Americans in, in the South that made lynching kind of just the daily norm that made courts un, inaccessible. And that, that is why I think it, it's a lot about the South and why a lot, I think a lot of African-Americans, a lot of black people, a lot of minorities have this apprehension from engaging with the government system because historically doing so meant death. And we have to be in these spaces and we have to do our voices because if you are honest about the history of America, you have to be honest why some individuals, I hate, hate, hate when people talk about voting and then someone saying, man, I don't want to vote. And they're just dismissed. And like that's it's why well, I disagree with it. Always vote. I always say it doesn't matter who you're voting for. I don't. I've never told anyone to vote for any political party or any political person. I just said, but you have to go vote. You have to. You have to show everyone that you are engaged and you will not. That an election will not occur without you watching. You have to show your participation because it's your participation in the system that they're actually trying to stop. It's not actually your vote. Who you vote for, what your beliefs are, it doesn't matter. What matters is, are you gonna participate or are you not? Because it's fundamentally, America is still a democracy. You know, of course people will debate that. But fundamentally, that's what it is. And if you show that you're going to be engaged and you're going to participate, it changes how those conversations, it changes how resources have to be allocated. And, but people, you can't let apathy rule because apathy is what they want more than anything. And it's the same thing in all manner of government, not only from voting, it's apathy in the court system. It's apathy in the jury room. It's apathy in legislation hearings. It's the idea that here's this thing that they're gonna use, because every time there's a law, every time there's a change judgment, it's always the people. It uses your, whether you want to or not, you are, your presence is co-signed is willingly co-signed to this ideal. And if you agree to not participate, that's even better to co-sign you with. At least if you're participating, it gives you some level of of, of, of protesting, of saying, no, 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 I do not agree. I did not vote. It's the same reason, again, just to pay attention to what's going on now, the same reason you had people who didn't vote for the infrastructure plan who are now trying to take advantage of it. They they wanted it, they still wanted the resources, but they wanted it to be on record that they didn't, they didn't want. But they're still going to take advantage of it. You can do that. But if you don't show up, you don't vote, you can't. That's just the way that works, whether we like it or not. Exactly. That's like the government take your hands off of my Medicare. Like, Mm -hmm. well, how how are you going to get it if the government (laughs) give it to you? I mean, but you, again, you bring up, it's so many good points. You know, it's it's really hard to keep up. It's like, oh, I want to talk about that. But, um, the reason why engagement is so important among other things is because when you see the Stacey Abrams 
um, protests and when you see the, the amazing work that she's doing across the board to just bring um, attention to voting inequity, if mm-hmm. you've seen it before, you know kind of the play-by-play. You know what's going to happen. You know why it's happening because what we've done in this um, generation is erase the why and reframe the narrative. And so a lot of children watching this, they think, oh, maybe it's not that bad. Maybe there's a disconnect from slavery and and a disconnect from Jim Crow, a disconnect from what they did to undo reconstruction. But when you see just the side-by-side of the two, there is no mistaking what's happening. And I think that kind of links to why we need quality education in order for people to make informed votes but uh, uh, more so than that like when we you talked earlier about the the issue with housing and people getting out of the system but having nowhere to go and we know that without the security when we think about Maslow's hierarchy when you don't have anywhere to stay and when you're homeless and when you're hungry and when you're you're in a place of desperation then where do you go what what are you likely to do um, recidivate. And so if we're trying to keep people out of the system, then we need laws that actually yield to that end. And the only way we get them is policy. The only way that we get policy is by engagement. The only way we get engagement, um, true engagement, and we're able to show that is through voting. And so there's a direct link between the things that our people need and the engagement that they have. And the more that just things like wanting to come home (laughs) are penalized, um, the more we get people with records. And then we know that, you know, once you've been convicted, there's some steps you have to go through even after you serve your term to, to be allowed to vote again. And so we need to try to keep our people out of the system so that they can have a voice, so they can maintain their voices rather. And so um, all of these things are connected in in a way that actually requires people to be taught about them. Like you can't just assume that the kids are gonna know because we're seeing this narrative on television and nobody's actually getting to the root. The one thing I've learned in life is you always have to assume people honestly and admittedly just don't know something and that that's fine. Uh, you're not going to people. You're, it's more likely to encounter someone who doesn't know a thing than to encounter someone who does know a thing. It sounds like, of course, but you need to really consider that. And like people do not know what happens next when people get released. When you people don't know what happens if you get arrested. People don't know what happens when you're detained. And we're trying to fill that knowledge gap with a. Uh, it's great now that we have this multimedia space and this uh, we all, anyone can plug in and, and, and upload knowledge and information. That's great. And anyone can consume it. But still the base of people still do not know. And we definitely do not know what the other side is of, okay, someone has been convicted. Someone has quote unquote done their time. He paid their debts to society. What's that next step? Because I think, I, I think the main problem everyone has, especially when it comes to criminal activity, isn't actually a first time offender. It's always the quote unquote hardened criminal. They're people who recidivize. And you if you're not paying attention to what happens when you get out or why you would go to recidivize or why you would simply remain, why would you put yourself in a position to return back? If you've never visited Angola, and I do not recommend anyone do it, but if you have the energy there, living there, it it, it is a prison. And no one wants to be there. No one is happy to be there. 
people are surviving. No one, like even even those who are doing really great work, and you know, some people, some of my clients are some of the accomplishing things that I would never think was possible. But it's still the environment is not a it's not a fully productive one, and it can't be because it, at the at its core it has it is a place of confinement. But what happens after you leave, and why would someone put themselves in a position to go back? For many times, it's not a question of they wanted to put themselves in that position. Like you said, it's a hierarchy of needs. It's I need to eat. I need to be out of the elements. I need clothes. I need to see my loved ones. I need to, I need to survive. And I don't have, even if I have the tools, I don't have the ability to actually do that on the outside because the framework is not in place. So I'm forced back to go the only way I know how to do things because we are not teaching how to navigate this, this world. You know, you take someone for 20 years and you put them behind bars and you release them. Ahmed, think about 20, think about the year 2000, the word in 2020 and 2022 right now. Think of everything that has changed. Literally, it happened to me uh, Friday where someone, uh, someone who, who was homeless asked me for money and I had to tell, I don't have cash. Like I don't carry cash. We are, that is not a thing, you know, that's quote, sooner and sooner becoming a thing where that's not even a thing anymore. And now I've reached a point where I don't even carry my card because it's all on my phone. How do you reach this? If you took someone who's in jail for 20 years, they're coming into a world where the concept of cash is even diminished. You know, did they, could they have ever imagined this, this, this digital world where when trying to tell someone, because uh, we have in New Orleans, there's something called red bean coin that you can get. It's like a local crypto. Uh, but what, imagine telling someone who's been incarcerated that they can accept their, their income in that. You know, how do you even make that choice? If you you have to explain what the hell, what do you mean? What is crypto? And we don't explain that because society advances faster than we think, faster than we can keep up with education-wise. And you're taking individuals who have been purposely taken out of any attempts to educate to the current speed. And and I'm not even I'm not even gonna like challenge that. I, there's some realities to trying to do some rehabilitation in incarcerated spaces where I understand. You know, you, you, there's certain there are other places where you have to devote your energy. But when you release someone from this who is trying to uh, reincorporate into society, again, the point of that project, especially because uh, the way the program worked, you had to be between the age of 16 and 25. Imagine a 25-year-old being released who's been incarcerated since 18, being released and being told you can't go to your mother's house. When you were 25, if you had got, if you were dropped out evicted where would you go you would probably try to go to your mom or some family member's house and you cannot do that if they're under uh any public housing and we could talk about that why is that the law uh there you know we can we should know that history of why they got the law why is there no exceptions for that for something as simple as i have an individual who's coming home is going to need about a month to get their feet together it's it's and, and then we can talk about, well, what's good for that household? What's good for that neighborhood, that block? Maybe we want this individual in that household. Maybe it's better that that individual gets another income earner rather than that individual has to go get another lease, has to get more bills, which is a drain on their resource, on that family's resources. Uh, and that's, that, but that's, that's the, the, what I call the housing, that's the housing issue that's, you know, that's also nationwide, the, the yes. lack of affordable housing that we need to talk about. But I think one of the thing is, especially when you are of limited means, the need to pull resources, but we don't have a framework that even allows that. No, we don't. Um, and, and that is really to assume that we actually want a mobility. 
and um, you know, profit off of our poverty. And so if the assumption is that we actually want, and we see that with the grants, you know, the kids have to be at risk and half time they have to stay at risk in order for you to get the grant renewed. And so like, really you want them to come up, but how far? Um, and so like, first of all, the assumption is that, you know, we want them to, want them to progress. And secondly, if we do want them to progress, how far do we want them to progress and how is that going to diminish our capacity to exploit them? And I think that when people start to think about where the money goes and how it got there and why are all of these people on public housing when a lot of folks own their homes um, and, and we go back to the criminal justice system and we see how putting houses up, you know, during in the bail system actually <laughs> um accounts for a lot of people losing their homes in the first place you know um and so it, it's it's so much to to unpack predatory lending redlining just a lot of things um that we we actually we can't fit into this conversation but um you know it just opens the door for other areas that that we need to dive deeper into and other literature that that we want to Suggested. But I think it goes back to us being honest about ourselves and that when we are doing uh, affordable housing work, are we doing it so people can can become homeowners or do we want so people can have lifetime renter? And I don't make value judgments on that. I, I don't think you need to make a value. I just think you just need to be mindful of what you're doing. And, you know, again, you live in an urban environment. It's it's going to be hard to to have a lot of home ownership. Well, not in New Orleans because we have we have a large reason the space that we could develop the New Orleans East, which was and was a you know a home of especially black middle class and black wealth uh, that has not been redeveloped appropriately. I would say since Katrina, but otherwise, if you you know a lot of rural areas, home ownership isn't isn't a isn't a logical dream. I mean, because space is such a premium. Like the mo condo ownership might be a logical dream, but apartment ownership might be a dream. But home, standalone home, single, you know, a single dwelling unit on its own plot of land, that's not an accessible dream for a lot of urban environments. And that's fine. That is not an indictment of that, but just an acknowledgement of that. So if we're, when we have the affordable housing conversation, let us be honest about what our goal is. And we need to be honest that. And you need to have that conversation with the individuals that you're building this policy for to see if it aligns with what they want. Because if you have this whole entire policy up to create, uh, you know, just a formal lifetime renters, but the people who you're doing, who you're building this policy for, don't want that. They would rather move out to um, like a more suburban area and have the quote unquote American dream of a white picket fence. If that's what they want, why is policy not putting a path to that? Why are we not? having a more large why aren't we focusing on the tools necessary why are we building a world that the people don't want to actually live in and you're not having that conversation we know that like yeah you know all of these you gotta have that conversation um we know why (laughs) yeah we know why but you got but you gotta have that conversation you have to come back and again that's why it comes out after you cannot be apathetic you cannot allow people to create policy that's going to affect you with no engagement by you because then it will it will not be written towards your ends and whatever you're in and again i it's important in these conversations to always push back if you unless you are you have 
because stakeholders, I think, is too large of a term because you talk to people like me or I'm considered a stakeholder. Where I'm like, I'm not a stakeholder. I'm an employee of the movement. Like, I, I am an attorney. I simply represent their interests. They are my clients are stakeholders. I am furthering their their gods and what they want to happen, not what I want to happen, because I am not in that situation. I am not from New. I am not born and raised in Louisiana. My son is born and raised in, in New Orleans, Louisiana. I am. I am a transplant from probably Louisiana who is just lending my services because I like being here. You tell me how you want New Orleans to be. Now, I, as a resident, I get some say-so in that too, but no, I cannot speak to, all I know is what New Orleans East was before. I don't, I'm not saying what it has to be now, but I just, I, I, I knew what was there. I knew what was possible. So you can't tell me it's not possible now. Like uh, that's, that's my take on it. Um, oh, oh, there's another, we can talk later about there's a conversation going on with, uh, the, they're trying to restore the beaches in New Orleans. There's two prominent beaches. Uh, again, history of, of Jim Crow. One was one Pontchartrain Beach, which was the whites-only beach, and then there was Lincoln Beach, which was the uh, black-only beach. And as history came, Lincoln Beach got closed. Pontchartrain Beach was uh, was integrated. We lost both beaches, and now there's a push to try to bring them both up. But what is the purpose of the? And there's two very stark differences in the purpose of these beaches. And questions need to be had of can these purposes coexist? Can they be developed simultaneously? And those are conversations that need to be happened and decide. And that requires engagement from the citizenry of what is actually wanted here, what is actually needed here. And it cannot, you cannot do it from a tourist perspective because the tourists aren't always here. So you cannot account for them and they aren't here to tell you. You know, you can't, even if you wanted to build a new tourist attraction, the tours aren't, aren't, you can't focus group tours, can you? I mean, you can, but no one's doing it. You're focus grouping people here who are guessing what the tours want. But you have the people here. Why don't you just build for what the people want and then trust, because a lot of tourists in New Orleans come because they want the authentic experience. There'll be a tourist element for them. Don't worry. <laughs> but that's, that's not here, neither here nor there. Um, but I mean, again, I, I keep saying it, but you touch on so many good yeah. things. Every time it's like, Wait a minute, I wanna go here, here, here. But um, yeah, like we need engagement. We need informed engagement so that people actually understand the why behind them putting their um, proverbial ticket in the ballot box. Mm-hmm. Like they need to understand kinda what this is actually gonna accomplish because if you tell somebody the why, then they're fine with the what. But if you just say do this thing and they don't actually see any result then why would they do it and i mean when we talk about housing i agree with you um you know sometimes it's not feasible for people to to necessarily own their home but when we look at the value of home ownership and how that translates into generational wealth then we begin Mm -hmm. to see why there is an incentive not to actually have people own their homes and and i do take offense to um not necessarily saying that everybody should have one but making impediments to home ownership because that is stifling wealth in the black community and so that's something that we have to address and then when we look at san antonio independent school district versus rodriguez a case that's still on the books um we begin to see that you know poverty is not a protected class under the constitution, um, particularly as it relates to education. So there is no right to um, 
quality education <laughs> um, or equitable, equitable education um, under the Constitution. Um, our state laws give us that and equal protection and some other um, avenues, but just offhand, quality education based on poverty, um, you know, you don't have a right. And, and when we think about that, then it trickles down into um, informed decision-making. If you don't have a right to be educated at the same level, then when you go to make these votes, like how much does the vote actually impact society when you don't know what you're voting for? And so again, that's a systemic barrier that was created post Brown v. Board to say, okay, so maybe we can't um, discriminate by law on the basis of race, but here's poverty and most of the same group of people are also poor. So we can discriminate on the basis of poverty and we're gonna do that. Which is fundamentally illogical, right? It makes no sense in a, in a quote unquote democracy that there is no protection for poverty if only because there are more people who are impoverished. If, if we are in a democracy, why wouldn't they want a vote protection for themselves? So it's one of those things of, yeah, it, it's fundamentally illogical that that doesn't happen because it, once you said, well, there is a protection class for people impoverished, the next day you would assume the power, people who are impoverished would be like, well, let's go ahead. It's an amendable constitution, but we don't. It's one of those fun things, not fun, but one of those like interesting things of all my education in the history of, of Louisiana. And I, I my the, my one of my big passion is history. I, oh, I've poverty is not a protected class. I it's not. Know. But no, my point is like one of the things that I do not know. I do not know how to do. I've not read about is how exactly is a constitutional conviction formed? Like, how do you go about doing that? What does it take? And shouldn't that be a thing all Americans just know? <laughs> it's our constitution. It is. It can be amended. We know you can be amended by a constitutional conviction. But how exactly do you go about doing that? There clearly is a mechanism for the people to simply uh, come up, certify, and go through the 50 states and certify something into the Constitution. Hasn't happened in my lifetime. I don't know how you would go about doing that. Why Why do I not know that? And it's one of those bits of, it's 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 a bit of history, it's a bit of knowledge that is not passed down. And we you need to be aware of why. Why isn't that not what civics is taught? When we teach civics and government, U.S. government in schools, why do we not? We always talk about what it, what the systems are and what the barriers are. We don't talk about the 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 tools that are already in place of how you could go about changing. Yeah, and the reason we don't talk about how you can change it is because we don't actually, and I say we as in society, yeah. we want those things changed, and 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 everybody who. A lot of the folks who, who don't want them changed, they know exactly why. And they also know they can't articulate that. Um, and so that's the reason why these lingering questions need to be had. And we need to encourage our kids to ask why. Um, you know, when I was a child, I, I wanted, this was, I wanted to to be like Mega Evers. I wanted to be like Martin Luther King. I wanted to be somewhat like Malcolm X, although I didn't agree with some of his um, what? approaches. Some of the approaches. Um, but but I, I did respect the why. I respected his passion. I respected what he was trying to accomplish. I mean, I even respected um, the Black Panther Party's mission to, to transform their community and how it was... Um, 
exploited. <laughs> and, and so when I look at all of these people that I looked up to, I asked my mom one day, I'll never forget it, I was in elementary school, why is it that everybody that I look up to, was, what, they're all, none of them died of natural causes for the most part. Like they were all shot. And so if I decide to be what I admire, does that mean I'm gonna be killed too? And, you know, I was scared, like I said, well, well, I can't be like them, even though these are the people that, in my mind, may have made the most difference in the world. But I, like, do I have to sacrifice my life? And she explained to me the concept of martyrdom. Mm. And um, that's a conversation you shouldn't have to have with a child in lower elementary school. No. And um, I thought about it. And um, she said, are you willing to die for what you believe in? And I said, I don't want to die, but yes. It's, it's kind of interesting, I always say, because like, especially now, the discourse, you always hear the, the patriots, you know, I'm willing to fight for this country. It's coming, it's coming. And it's the individuals who say that are not the ones who actually have a history of having to do that. The ones who, who, who are now very proudly... I'm I'm a I'm a warrior for this state, and the time comes I need my Second Amendment because I'm gonna defend. But your history is not the ones who have ever actually had to do that. The ones who have had to do that are the cautious ones, and I think it's because it's more real. It's more real to us. Like my my mom always talks about all the time because my granddad. I don't know too much about his past, but from what I knew about my granddad, he, he was active in the community. He was very active for education, and you know they, my mom tells me she have cross burning her yard by the twin so she that is a that is a memory that is with her for forever and it's just that level of what of exposure you put your family in if you are actually trying to accomplish anything and it's just interesting now in the context of you hear people will say things like oh someone said something mean about me in a speech oh my god i'm being i'm being targeted but it's like that's not the people who know what being targeted is have been targeted and they live and they we, we are very aware of that and it's not you know again i, I take people at their, at their word i don't want to i don't want to say that their fears and concerns aren't valid but i do but again let us be honest about the history of who was on what side of the violent of violent uprising like you said who's who was doing the shooting and who got shot the last societal cultural change for rights of the end of the two to bring when we, who we had a movement to try to bring rights for the people against the government we had that movement who who got fired upon and who was and who was fired and i think if you're not being honest about that it's that level of honesty we we've lost and it may be not lost but maybe we just never had it but i think that was the honest conversation we have and it's why i think you have so much discourse about no crt in schools no this and that it's it's they're, they they are aware of what it is. So they're making this dishonest place because they want to lay the groundwork. Because, I mean, hopefully viewers are, there's no such thing as CRT education in elementary setting. CRT is a legal term. So you just can't discuss it until you, it's like a high, high level theory. Like it's just not, you can't you can't discuss it in elementary schools. It just doesn't make any sense. Oh, you can't but discuss you can't it water in, down history either. You can't, but like the actual uh, critical race theory, there's no discussions about critical race theory in in in, in element. You can't. I mean, it's you, 
the cases there's lawyers who don't even know the cases that form the basework of the theory uh you know how many know Anzaga versus us very few actually know that case but it's like that's one of the cornerstones so that's when the supreme court basically confirmed the value of whiteness which is part of critical it's a big part of critical race theory it's like part of what the law is no one's talking about that case in it's a that's a 3l law school level discourse so but they're using it as a scare tactic to, to stop people from going on the educational path or they might understand it. It's, it's trying to be dishonest about history. Wait, it's I trying mean, to yeah. not necessarily whitewash it, but you're trying to you're, you're trying to change what the narrative is on what the history was because you don't want people challenging things like a Jim Crow law that lived for 120 years. And that's one of the things that gets me is you know, I went up my entire legal career. Uh, I've talked to some retired judges on this, doing this project, who, you know, been been judges for years, presided over many, many criminal trials, never knew it was a racist origin. And think about how many black judges have prescri- have prescribed over trials where in their heart, they kind of knew, like, wait a second, is this person guilty because the two black people who voted wasn't, who didn't voices weren't counted probably if had they known what the law was could have objected and did something about a year years ago but didn't even know that was the issue didn't know that was the basis of it and just thought that's what it is oh it's louisiana it's a it's a french you know that's what people thought oh it's a bit you know it's the law that's the law that louisiana tells oh it's based on the polygana code so that's why it's weird but because you hit the history and when you find the history that changes your realization of it and you realize wait this law is very purposeful to attack one group of people. And then you look at the history of Louisiana, you look at Louisiana's incarceration rates. Most in, New Orleans is the most incarcerated city and the most incarcerated state in the world. Oh, and it turns out the laws were specifically written to be able to simply lock up black men and incarcerate them for life. That is why that was the stated purpose of the law. Because after the Civil War, black men were organizing in to effectuate their communities because PBS Pinchback was able to get such a consensus that he won the governorship in Reconstruction. He would have, we, we should have had a black governor years ago and it was stolen from us. And you forget all that. Yep. And then not, again, I do go on too many tangents. I always, oh, it, no, 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 it's fine. Because, you know, but uh, for PBS Pinchback, we wouldn't have Southern University. And so like, you know, there's so much that, that can be pulled from that. And, and just looking at, you know, AMN, a and M colleges and, and 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 even to to looking at kind of the 13th amendment and that carve out and why it happened but what i what i like that you said and i want to kind of elevate this a little bit um you mentioned the how it's they don't know about the two black people two to three black people and, and kind of why that that was when people tell the story without the facts that we know to be true, they're going to find an example of a case where those two to three weren't black that happened to vote some, I mean, the jury, the jurors were not black. And then um, people were still um, incarcerated and say, well, see, it can't be a black issue because here are some white jurors that, you know, that, no. And, and this is anonymity, and and um, because you can do that, and you can find those exceptions that for of non-black folks, then um, 
people are able to to dilute the arguments if you know better then you can say no that these are some exceptions but the real reason behind the law was directed toward black folks so if you, regardless of what you find but one of my thing is is and this is arguments i made doing this is that is not an exception that really proves the rule because the rule of the jury the reason we have the jury system in our country is a very simple idea which is before the state can say you did something you did something you did it and i get to punish you for it before they get to do that they have to get 12 people who you don't know randomly selected your peers just randomly selected community and the state says i'm going to convince these 12 people who don't know you don't have any real ties to me who don't know anything about this case i'm going to put evidence before them and they're going to the same conclusion I've reached, which is you did this, and if we get 12, that does. So even if those two jurors are not black, even if the defendant is white, the, the perversion in the system is you fundamentally change how our system is supposed to work, which is you didn't do something unless 12 people agree that you did. People who did not know, who only heard the evidence, agree that you really what you want. And we, the whole point of this whole process is to taking everyone's experiences. You do not want the various experiences from different people, and we know people have different cultures and, diff and different uh, and different things. Then, and my favorite example it wasn't a criminal trial, but my favorite example of this is a case I had years ago. Uh, individual, she was being she was she was threatened to be evicted for fighting with the property manager. Yeah, property manager was white. The uh, client, my client, was black. The 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 property manager is like. She came in with a dispute about her, a simple repair to see. She's like, and she threatened me. She threatened, she's like, she was talking to me and she started pushing her hands like this, hand and fist as if I'm gonna fight. And as she's telling this, and this is why I'm defense, she's, uh, this is a direct examination. She said, and what was she doing while she was putting fist? She was like, she, she, would, she was saying how, she was saying how you, you need to, you know, we need to get someone in there now and she is not gonna wait till the next day. And if I don't do that, I'm gonna, you know, you need to give me the number to your manager. And she was saying that as a threat, that if I didn't do it, she was gonna get me. And I stood up and I went and I said, and the judge was black as well. And I said, was she putting her fist in her or was she clapping? She's like, what do you mean was she clapping? I was like, did she go get your manager on the phone or it's gonna be problems? Or did she go get your manager on the phone or that will be problems? And you're giggling because as a black woman, you get oh, the difference. Oh, I know. I mean. <laughs> you got the difference. The black judge got the difference. Everyone in the courtroom got the difference. It's a cultural thing. There was no threat of violence in that. It no. is simply a cultural thing. Is This is a clap for enunciation <laughs> to identify. This is the living, uh, unfold, underlying attitude of the point of, if you do not fix my toilet, I want it to speak to your manager just our culture i mean that's me for stuff that's not exactly every black person gets it if you're around black people you get it but if you didn't know and all you saw was like hitting of hands together and you're from a different culture well the only movement you know is get it i'm gonna hit you blah 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 you interpret that differently but me just clapping it out i was like my finest moment as a turn me clapping out on her going oh yeah that's what she did like the judge was just like that. Oh, okay. Like everyone's like, oh, case dismissed. She was oh, not threatening. He's just letting out the emotion behind. Not the emotion. She's just letting you know this is this it's is a bold underlying conversation. 
I want to speak to your manager if you cannot fix my toilet in a day. A very reasonable position for a mother of two to take, who, whose plumbing has not worked in two weeks. <laughs> She's not. <laughs> yeah, she did not verbally say, I'm going to hit you. No, there was never a threat of violence. But she, but you, and you know, I, after she lost, like I literally, cause I worked with that manager all the time. And cause she was like, she, she was mad at me for why. And like, I literally had to have a conversation to her about, I was like, you need some cultural training. Let me put you in touch. Because it's like, that was never a threat. Like, I remember, I remember like two weeks later, I, cause again, I, I did, I did this work. So I was in, and she was just like, she's like, Hardo, I can't believe you. What if she goes and hits me? I was like, she's never going to hit you. That is an absolutely not a threat. Like that is not, I don't know what, I don't know where you're coming from. I don't know where you grew up at. Never was that a threat. That is not a threat. That's just not, it's not. That is not how I, there is a way of communicating threats, <laughs> but that ain't one. <laughs> but you know, the crazy thing about that is in that moment, the lady's fear was probably a bigger threat to, um, to the person who was clapping yeah, the other way around. And that is, you know, that's what we try to impress upon people when we, you know, with the traffic stops and all of these things. Unwarranted fear causes a bigger <laughs> threat to us than the action, than, than what we're actually doing. Mm -hmm. And it's, but again, I take it back to just being honest. If she was honest with herself when I told her that, if she was honest of, I actually do not understand black people culture. I do not understand, like, this is not a job that you are fit for, you know? And even are like, you need more training to do this job. If you're gonna work in this space and you're, you, you are not communicating on the level that other people, that your client base is communicating on. And you should know their communication. It's no, it's no different. You couldn't, you couldn't uh, be a manager for an apartment building of Spanish speakers if you don't speak Spanish. You gotta know how to speak Spanish. It's just the nature of it. If you do not understand what clapping while talking means, you really can't, how are you gonna manage, manage, manage black women? Like you just, like there, if you don't know, not to say black women need to be mad, I'm just saying, if a property manager, it's hard to manage that space if you don't understand what folks mean or what, you need to know the culture, you need to know that, and it's it's hard, yeah. And not, not only do you have to know the culture, you have to actually appreciate the culture and not try to change it. Yeah. I mean, just, just to know that me existing as my full self is a threat to some people for their lives, even when it's not... I mean, I wrote a piece actually where I was talking about how um, there was a winding road with no shoulder and I was, I chose to walk in the road even though it could have gotten me hit by a car because I understood that walking in this grass in this mm -hmm. privileged neighborhood um, risked my life more so than walking <laughs> on the road. I could just, I just needed to look out for cars. And, and you know, to somebody who does not have like to somebody who perceived this all white rich neighborhood to be a place of safety, they they would not in a million years think this person was willing to risk their lives by walking on the road because no. they were scared. Like no, because being not. seen was better than it, it was safety. Like being being in a safe spot where you wouldn't necessarily be seen if you were taken, that was not safety. It was better to be seen in the middle of the road, watch for cars. Like everyone sees you, I'm I'm out here. Then to be in a position where you could be snatched off. Yeah. If I'm stepping on their grass and they can make an argument that they shot me for trespassing. Yep. And like, no, uh, uh, uh nope. 
the road yep. is everybody. So I'm just going <laughs> to take my chances and hope I don't get hit. But that's a conversation that I was having internally that they would never even understand. If somebody saw me get hit, well, she could have walked in the grass. No, that was not a viable option for me, given my fear. And if you can have an unwarranted fear of me that warrants me getting shot, then why can't I have a fear that warrants me walking in the road? And so, you know, without going into too much, I just, um, I want to be mindful of time and, and get to the next. But I want to say, but just circle back, because I can go to a project. That's why I say it doesn't matter who the jurors are. Because when you have that 12, if you get arrested for walking the road or for whatever happens, having 12, the whole point of our 12 is that hopefully you get someone in that room who has your shared experience, who even if they won't, they can't convince the other 11, they can hold out and force an mistrial. And like, that's what you take away when that's, and that was the point of the Jim Crow law. The point of Jim Crow juries was to take that away so that even if there is someone who could shed light and, and slam the brakes on this proceedings, you can remove that person. Because it's hard to get, 12 is a pretty good sampling of like randomness in society, to be honest. Like if you look at, you do get a, a good, nice wide cross section. Now, a lot of places use voter rolls. So if you're not voting, if you're not registered, uh, that comes becomes a problem. So please register the vote, go to jury service. We need you. Uh, if you wonder, if you are, the worst thing you can do is if you are afraid of the criminal justice system is to be afraid to be a juror. Go be a juror. Cause that's, if you are before, you will hope that someone like you is in the juror box. If you ever get caught up and come before and you need someone who has that same fear you have, who can, who, who can argue for you in that room as to the reason behind your actions. Cause we, you know, we talk to jurors, we pull them afterwards. Uh, so much of it comes to confusion. Uh, there's a, one of the cases, uh, I'm not going to say his name on this podcast is, uh, Al Jazeera did a story on it. And one of the jurors talked about how oh, the reason they thought he guilty because he kept looking at, him. they kept, he kept making eye contact with the jury. And you know, the historical context of a black man making contact, you made, you know, he was guilty versus, and we asked him, he's like, well, my, my attorney said make eye contact because that's how, you know, people are trustworthy, but you know, the context of it, you have a white juror was like, I know that. What gives this black man the gall to look me in the eye? That's the context of it. Like, you have to know the historical context of it. So as an attorney, when you have attorneys who go in these spaces, you need to know You need to know that. You need to know that differences. And what happened in that case, you had the two black jurors who were like, no, because they didn't They didn't take any of that in. in they only took the evidence. They didn't look at him like, hey, he's looking at us. That must mean something. Because for us, it's like, oh, he's looking at us. Of course he looks at us. What, who else is he going to look at? We don't want to find his face. Of course he's going to make eye contact with us. He wants us to see him as a person. But for them, he thinks he's our equal. You know, hate that I, I shouldn't put those in those terms. But it's just, that's but that's the context it comes from. And we need to, that's where knowing your biases, and it's hard. It's hard for everyone to know. It's harder, especially for, you know, our, our white brethren out there to, to know those and be honest about those. But it's necessary because you cause so much harm, not only to the individual, but to society at large, to all of us. Uh, when when someone is incarcerated uh, unjustly, it is it is a harm not only to the person, but to us all. That's taking someone out of society that could be a benefit. That's taking someone, that is, that's teaching a family that injustice is more than justice. <clears throat> that's, it's, it's a perversion. It corrupts our entire system. And you, we have to guard against that. At least I, I believe you have to guard against that. Uh, it's like an aside, I always say it's so hard. Everyone always talks about how hard it is to find 
tradespeople in Louisiana. And it's like, because the best trade school is Angola. And people who graduate with all these skills don't ever get to practice in our society. And then we wonder why it's so hard to get construction done here. Because the people who would do it, the people with those skills aren't in our community. And then we wonder, well, if they recidivism because they don't have jobs. I, I, right now, if I knew a plumber, that's a $2,000 job I would pay tomorrow to do some work. And it's just, I, I have the money sitting in my savings account. Can't find the person to come do it. And it's just, that is, that's the reality we are in. And it's just, you can't, it's because of this harm. When I have three of my clients who are currently incarcerated, who I know have the skills to do it, but can't because they're incarcerated. Absolutely. Um, for those of you who are just tuning in, this is Excellence at All Costs. I am chatting it up with my Morehouse brother, Hardell Ward. Um, some good stuff. So if you're just now tuning in, I encourage you to go back, listen to the rest of it. Um, and we are about to wrap up. We're talking okay. about uh, the final question on my list, mental health um, and really being able to have that self-care when you're doing this type of work because it is hard. I mean, a lot of times certain viewpoints, certain um, controversial issues to face them head on. Um, we there, There's always, I don't know about you, Hardell, but for me, it's always in the back of my mind, what is this going to cost me? Um, you know, how is this going to backfire? Like, am I brave enough to say it? And most of the time is, yes, I am brave enough to say it. It is what it is. But um, there's this constant state of anxiety because of microaggressions and all of the other things that we have to deal with, um, you know, because we, we do have to eat, we have to keep a job, but, but to do this job and then remember why we did it and stay true to that, there are some costs. And, and, and on that note, it's incumbent upon us to protect ourselves and, and, and also to embrace self-care and, and really it's, it's self-preservation. That's really what it is. Um, and so I wanted to hear from you kind of, what are some tips that you have for people who are engaged in, in this type of work to maintain? First, like you said, be aware and be very honest with yourself and understand it's going to, it's going to affect you even if you don't think it affects you. Uh, when you're doing this kind of work, first, you're probably doing it because you're very passionate about it and you are more connected to it than you're willing to acknowledge. So anytime there's a setback, you're going to take that as a personal fate because you, especially in the legal game, you hear it so often how the more time you put to stuff, the better result you get, which is true for a lot, but you cannot give your all. And even if you think you can, you just can't. You still have to eat. You still have to bathe. You still have to go to the doctor. You still got to go to the dentist. You still got to take care. You still got to do some social interaction. Uh, you might find love. You still need to, like, if you got a little boo, you still need to do little boo things. You still need to, you know, you still need to get your hair did every now and then, get your hair cut. Like, you still need to practice those self-care things about yourself. You still need that because the work is so tempting to simply say, just throw your, just pour yourself into it. But not only is not, not, while that might be beneficial for the work, there's always gonna be a moment where you need to be your best self in that, in that moment. And if you are not, that becomes a problem. Because when we argue before the Supreme Court, you only get one argument, you get 20 minutes, that's it. If you are not your best self, uh, my supervisor, Jamila Johnson, she argued it. And literally when we were doing that, when the decision was made, she was gonna argue, I told her, for the next month, I'm, I'm not only I'm like working with you, 
consider me just your personal helper. Like, if you need anything, I'm going to get it for you. Like, you come to work, I will get you breakfast and food. Just focus on you right now for this month. Because on that day, you need to be, you got to be on your best day because you're only going to get one shot at it. We got one shot at that to, to argue, and she did an amazing job. But you have to be aware, mindful of that. You may only get one day. You may only get three minutes at a legislative session. You may only get a few words with a senator, a few words with a representative. You may only get a one question in, in an argument. You don't know. And you have to make sure in those moments you are at your best self because that will eat you alive to go and do that and come back and you're like, oh, I had a toothache because I didn't go to the dentist a month ago. Uh, I, I'm worried because I, I, did, I did so many hours that I didn't take care of my house. So now I'm cutting my toilet is breaking because I didn't take the time to take care of that. So you have to do that. Yeah. And also doing this work, it doesn't, it doesn't pay you super great. It's not like, it's not huge, big law money. It's not, you know, there's, it's not flying off to Jamaica at a resort level money, but you, but you gotta, but it's enough money to take care of yourself. It's enough to take a little vacation. Next week I'm taking my son. We're going to the Gulf Shore just to hang out for a little bit. Uh, just, you, you know, find, just find some escape and just give yourself that because you don't want to spend all your time working. I'm not, I'm not a big monetary person, but we do work for money. So save a little bit about yourself, spend it on yourself. There's some benefits of it. Uh, I'm not a, I'm not a hardcore capitalist, but you know, if that's the system we in, I think it can work, but to do that, you have to spend on yourself too. No, it's okay. It's okay to have always tell people like it's a, it's a new public interest law. It's okay to have one vice, uh, uh, for me, for a while, uh, I was a Saints season ticket holder. That was my one vice. I paid for my Saints season tickets, and I went to every game. So if you're a person where it's, I need to have the Flyers closed, it's okay. Like, it's, give, give yourself that. It's, you need to, I had one of my good friends. She had this wonderful, like, briefcase bag, one of those fancy designer things. And she would get talked about it. Like, people would, would say behind her back. I was like, that's the only thing that she, like, that's the only material possession she gives a damn about. Like, she don't do any fancy clothes she just wanted a really nice bag to go into court with like leave that alone and people and just that's another thing self-care take care of your co-workers take care of people in the fight with you hear their self-care give them what they need like we are we are all we are the only ones fighting this battle a lot of times and that's one of the reasons i always say especially being black and the struggle is like i don't know the solution we all trying to get free i don't know what path's gonna get us there so like when you're like you know certain people i don't i i support all of you i support you if you're on the path for black liberation black freedom and, and black and in my view black liberation black freedom is when every black person from birth can choose to do what they want and can cast their energy and their efforts into that and maybe not be as successful as they want, but at least be able to do that. I see I see no reason why, you know, you'd be with the jokers or someone wants to be a rapper. See no reason why you can't be a rapper. Now, if he ain't no good, you ain't gonna make no money off of it, but there's no reason why you can't, that can't be your weekend hobby to do some bars and, and, and make some beats and, and put out a CD. I have, everyone has a weekend activity. I don't know why that's any different for someone who wants to hoop it up or wants to join a softball league. If you want to have a little mini studio and do that, if that's what you want to do, that's fine. Maybe you're good enough to make some money off of it, don't. I did comedy for a little bit. I never made any money for it, but it was fun to do. It was like five years of my life where I wrote jokes and told them. It, it was fun to do. It's good to have creative aspects. And everyone should have the option of doing that. That is supposed to be the American dream. That it's not the it's not the White House of Picket Fence. It's the freedom to have whatever you want to go into a room and do whatever you want to do whether or not it's profitable or not that is the american dream and that should be afforded to all of us 
and you get there by just taking care of and acknowledging the need for that. No one should be working 80 hours a day just to survive. No one should be having to spend their entire existence fighting to get the necessities for survival. Uh, there, we should be able to, you should be able to just, because we do need people to work, you know, society moves, we move as a unit. You should be able to do your, do what you gotta do, either something you really want to or something you're really good at or just something we really need and get it done and then take some time to yourself to build a family if you want to build up yourself if you want play video games whatever you want like that's the, whatever you want it's life the beauty right. of life yeah. Um, yeah and and what we don't realize is the prolonged stress and all of those things they impact us emotionally they impact every aspect of our lives and they actually even impact us physically because when we have prolonged cortisol um, increase and it just it doesn't go away you're constantly in fight or flight then um, you know it it messes up your immune system it messes up so many things and it makes you predisposed to um, having chronic illnesses as older people and you know when you when you're always in that mode it it also impacts your cognition your ability to think your ability to be logical and, and to advance in society and so when you take that break when you get the sleep that you need um you're actually helping yourself to be more productive and so mm-hmm. it's not that you are discounting um you know anything you're actually furthering your ability to function by resting and so um i want to dive deeper into that on another um segment but it was a joy talking to you, Hardell. As always. Yes, I, I'm really excited about putting this out there. So, um, yeah, thank you so much. And you have a wonderful day. Pleasure having talking with you. Thank you so much for tuning in. Until next time, keep being excellent at all costs. This is your host, Nichelle, signing off. See you next time.